You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. Can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Hello, hello, my dispatchers, my listeners. I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus. Today's topic is one that I have been endlessly fascinated with uh, in some form or fashion for essentially my entire life. Uh, you know, where do we come from? Uh, creation, how we were made, the, the true history of earth and our species and it is a topic that is more important now than ever before really you can look at the the aftermath of doctrines like evolution to see all the chaos and the destruction that these ideas have wrought upon humanity ideas and belief systems that led to some of the worst monstrosities and atrocities within the 20th century, and it is a topic that is sorely, sorely needed, and one that the church has, frankly, given up a lot of ground on. We have acceded the premise to so many of these ideas, so many of these beliefs, and I really don't understand why. <laughs> we have the Word of God to stand upon, and His Word is manifestly clear about what our creation is, what it entails, what it looks like, how it is made, uh, the foundations of the earth. What are those, right? What is the firmament? Uh, does the sun move? Does the earth move? I mean, these are questions that uh, the Bible has answered. The Bible has answered. And science falsely so-called, as Paul warns Timothy, and his letter is... Uh, Truly, it was just as big of a threat at the beginning of the church as it is in, in the, you know, our current church age. And it's one that, while certain aspects of it I'm newer to, uh, biblical cosmology is a subject that is vitally necessary and one that, frankly, a lot of pastors, you know, even pastors that I've, I've tried to, you know, talk to and explore more, you know, in my youth about this subject, uh, but the answers are just sorely, sorely lacking and often not grounded in any sort of biblical truth. And because it takes, it takes a high level of conviction to be able to say, let God be true and let every man a liar. When supposedly science is proving this and science is proving that, well, as I'm going to explore in this essay and as we're going to discuss today beforehand, this idea that science, quote-unquote, I mean, first of all, we need to, dis what does that even mean, right? It's that term is thrown around so much today, it's, it's, it's not a, science isn't a monolithic thing, it's a process, right? And so when we look at data, we update models and hypotheses. This is how true science works, observing the observable. 
And so when I really wanted to get to the the bottom of, you know, because I'm sure as a lot of people have seen this idea and concept of, you know, flat earth has been popping up a lot more recently. And it's one that I really didn't think anything of, you know, I'm sure like a lot of people I'd heard Kyrie Irving or, you know, whatever celebrity saying something about it, right? I used to watch Joe Rogan's program and I know, you know, Eddie Bravo would talk about it and you brush it off, right? You think nothing of it. And so one day my uh, then fiance, my current wife, she just asked me the question kind of innocu- innocuously. Is that, uh, she said, what do you think about the earth? Do you think it's flat? I said, I don't know, you know, right? Like, of course not. She says, well, well, I think it's flat. I said, why do you think that? You know, what what caused you to believe that? She was just, oh, you know, I I just feel it. I just have a feeling. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not, that can work for some people, right? But, you know, I like to prove, prove all things. You know, I like to test the spirits as, uh, as Proverbs 8.13 states. It is a folly and a shame to answer a matter before one has heard the matter. And so I, you know, when I first heard it, when she first brought this subject up to me, I didn't think too much of it, honestly. And so through some of my digging in my research uh, a little bit later, probably about a, a year or so ago now, I, uh, you know, I stumbled upon this, uh, some of this information, right? Uh, biblical cosmology, a term I had never heard of, uh, despite, you know, spending three plus decades uh, within the church and, and reading the Bible. And, you know, I'd never heard this term, biblical cosmology. And I, you know, I saw a, you know, information online, an article, some podcasts, some videos eventually as I explored this topic, talking about biblical flat earth. And I was like, what? What are these, what are these people talking about, right? Biblical flat earth. Well, it turns out as you explore God's word and as you explore the actual scriptures, it is, it's truly staggering. The number of verses that talk about the physical dimensions of the earth that talk about the foundations of the earth, right? As Psalm 104 verse 5 states, the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever, that these are unmovable, and that, you know, Psalm 93 verse 1 states, the world also established that it cannot be moved. I mean, over and over and over again. Never once do you see the earth as the one that moves within Scripture. The sun moves, right? Ecclesiastes 1.5 talks about, you know, the sun rising, going down, and hasting to its place where he arose, the sun, you know, personified. It is the sun that moves. It's the moon that moves. It's never the earth that moves. You know, I, I believe it's the book of Joshua where he prays to God and he asks God to stop the sun. And this is something that happens uh, several times in the Bible, actually, where the the sun stops. It's never the earth from, you know, the scriptural point of view that is ever moving. It's consistently the sun that is the one that's moving. And so at the very least, as I looked at some of these scriptures, I was like, okay, well, this is, at the very least, 
What you cannot state is that the Bible is a heliocentric book. From its perspective, from the lens that this information is presented, it is from a geocentric lens. It is from a geocentric perspective. You know, bare minimum. Bare minimum. And so there is, uh, you know, there's also plenty of verses, right, that talk about the circle of the earth. Proverbs 8.27 states, When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth. Now, the he being referred to, uh, or the, excuse me, the I was there, that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there at the beginning of creation, as Genesis 1, verse 2 states, you know, as the Spirit moved upon the, the face of the waters. The Spirit was there at the, at the beginning of creation as a triune part of God. And so, it is astounding over and over and over again. Now, a compass, right? A compass is a, a tool, probably use one in math class that you use to draw a circle. And now, interestingly, this, this word here, this Hebrew word, kug, you know, 2329 in your Strong's Concordance, talking about the circle of the earth. Now, Isaiah 40, 22, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, that he being referred to as God, he sits upon the circle of the earth. It's, as I started to pour through the scripture, as I started to truly look at God's word with new eyes, and with, you know, ready to receive, I wanted to test the spirits. I mean, this is a bold claim, right? That the Bible states that our earth does not move, that we are on a, on a circle, right? Now, that, it's important here that Isaiah 40, verse 22 here, that word is importantly not, you know, all of Scripture is inspired, is breathed, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. The words matter. They're important. And so God cannot lie. He cannot. And so when it says that the earth is a circle and not a ball, well, that's kind of, that's a pretty big, now there's words. Isaiah even uses words. He uses the word ball, the Hebrew word ball, that's dur. And so 1754 uh, in your Strong's Concordance. So earlier in Isaiah, multiple times even in Isaiah, he uses the word ball, so he clearly knows what it is, right? And as the Holy Spirit is moving through him and inspiring him, he doesn't use the word dur to describe the shape of the earth. He calls it a circle. You know, and this is also this same word here is used in Job chapter 22, verse 14. And he walketh in the circuit of heaven, this being God. Now, a circuit is a, is a circle. And per the, the definition of a circle, a circle is a planar region bounded by a circle or a, a shape consisting of all points on a plane that are at a given distance from a given point, the center. Well, a plane, is, a plane has to be flat. You can't have a, a, you know, a bent plane. So indeed, I mean, it talks about the ends of the earth. Where are the, where are the ends of the earth on, a, on the globe model? 
I mean, where's the pit? Right? The depths of the bottomless pit. Where's the bottomless pit on the globe model? That being Sheol or, or hell. I mean, it never does the... Uh, the Bible consistently gives us a, a description of reality that just does not conform with what science and what, you know, quote-unquote science. This like it's a monolithic institution as opposed to a, an actual process that you can go and verify. And so that's what I ultimately... When I saw some of this stuff, God's word, this was it for me. I was like, all right, your word says it, Lord, then that's true. And so after that point, knowing that God's word never returns void, I went and sought out the evidence. And really the, the globe killer for me, beyond God's word, but just from a scientific standpoint, and you know, one that I've shown other people and you know, found it very compelling is that we can just see too far. We can see too far. And so whether it's gravity or flight patterns or rocket trajectories or whatever have you, all of this relies upon the radius of the earth. It relies upon a specific measurement. And so if that measurement is not correct, that the rest, the entire model, relativity, gravity, it falls apart without that radius without that, that specific metric. And so we can go and we can test. I mean, there have been, I don't even know how many of these tests, you know, hundreds of these tests and these experiments performed over bodies of water, laser tests, right? What we can see too far. You know, I think the, I've heard about a, you know, a 30 mile test, right? That I have a, I'll be linking it in the show notes, a, a couple of the video tests. I know there's a, there was a seven-mile test in Canada uh, over a frozen lake. I mean, this is, you have almost, because this is the excuse, right, from the heliocentrist that they proffer is that uh, this is all light refraction. Ah, yes, the laser beam is just bending over the curve of the earth. And, and I've read this, right? They're def under the perfect conditions, they claim, that a laser beam could travel around the earth. Yes. See, what you're seeing is not actually what you're seeing. It's an illusion. Yes. Yes, I know it feels like you're not moving. And I know it looks like the sun's moving. And I know like you think you can see objects that are dozens or hundreds of miles away. But actually, that's all an illusion. What you're being told is you cannot trust your senses. That you cannot trust any of your basic rational faculties. We can't feel movement. We can't feel, we, we can't see the motion. The curvature that they claim is there, well, there's, again, hundreds of tests that have been performed now with, a, you know, laser tests, level tests. You know, then uh, there's another video and another video I'll be linking in the show notes, but there's a, a laser test performed in Utah, 21 miles. 21 miles. At the distances they were measuring over, there should have been hundreds of feet of curvature that, we would, have, that would have been visible over that distance. They're supposedly across the entire Earth, 25,000 miles of curvature. And this is, we should be able to detect this. This is the bedrock of the claim, right? That we live on a curved ball. 
Well, if we live on a curved ball, then we should be able to go and test it. And what happens is when, you know, people go out and test us, and I'm going to be verifying this myself here pretty soon, where me and the firmamental crew are going to be setting up a test here to have our own little piece of evidence here that we can put forward. Like, yeah, we didn't just watch a video online. We went and did the test ourselves. Because that is true science, repeatability. It's the same exact thing I did with this nanotechnology. Said, hey, there's lots of people online making all sorts of very outlandish claims, I thought at the time. You know, unfortunately, I wish they were outlandish. I mean, they are outlandish, but they are a true, unfortunately. So you get the scope, you go out, you do the, you do this, the actual science yourself, the experimenting yourself. This is the heart of true science. It is repeatability. And so as people are going out there, I mean, they're, you know, the regime, right? These people are, they're running out of places to lie. They're running out of places to lie. I mean, fraud after fraud after fraud. I mean, seriously, go read through my archives, whether it's fossil fuels, quote unquote, or the myth of nuclear weapons, the lies, the scale of the lies are just fantastical. They're hard to wrap your mind around, even still, you know? I've seen so much of the evidence, and it's really only through looking at the evidence, right? I mean, it's you can't just hear these things. You have to go and you have to see it for yourself. Seeing is truly believing. And so, this is a... This is just an arena that, frankly, the church has been derelict in their duty. They've been derelict in their duty. I, it's staggering to me, truly staggering to me that the threat that some of these ideologies pose to creation, to Genesis, to God's word, that this threat hasn't been taken more seriously by pastors. Because what we're, when we talk about science, quote unquote, trust the science, right? That's not, we're not talking about trusting the science, the process. But we're, what we are essentially saying is that science, our rational faculties, can explain every observable phenomenon. What we are saying is that this is the ultimate diviner and arbiter of truth. Well, that's no longer, that's, we're not talking about observing things, right, and falsifying things. That's a world belief, or a belief system, rather, right? A worldview. This is not, this is not, you know, just a anodyne thing that there's, oh yes, there's science and then there's religion and never the two, you know, never the, the two shall meet. I disagree. I vehemently disagree. There is a religion, a science falsely so-called that posits a creation story, that posits a purposelessness, a chaos that imputes characteristics. I mean, it is totally and fully removed the hand of the creator from reality. And that is a threat to Christianity. That is not a just something we can live and let live. This is something that must be addressed and that we must stand upon God's word. The only thing we have. And when you Look at God's word. Well, I mean, it's clear. Verse after verse after verse after verse. 
And so the further research section for this article was there is a, a ton of information, a ton of books, really quite in-depth, and we'll be adding here, I'll be adding some more uh, into the show notes here. And definitely a lot to digest. I'm sure, if, you know, for some of my listeners, you know, we, we're having a lot of new listeners and then a, a lot of new people coming in here, right? And, and even though I, I know there's a decent amount of people that listen to The Firmamental or they listen to George and The Flat Earth Files or The Fact Hunter, you know, I know there's a lot of crossover between our shows. Uh, you know, that's kind of how I got my start, you know, podcasting. And so, but for a lot of my listeners, I know this is a concept that in a serious and academic fashion, you're just not going to find. There's mockery and there's derision. But when you look into, again, you can pour into the actual experiments. You can look at the actual data yourself. Relativity is, and we're going to discuss this more, you know, more in depth and in, in, in later articles and, and episodes, but it, it is a just an utterly bankrupt system, an utterly bankrupt system, and it's falling apart. And any real physicist will admit this to you. Dark matter, quote unquote, something that cannot be defined, that cannot be measured, but makes up allegedly 99% of the matter in the universe. Well, this is not a, it's not even a real thing. It is a, a, a mental construct, right? That has to be added in. And so, yeah, there is uh, some, some documentaries, some books here that I highly recommend and are important to establishing some of, these, uh, some of these frameworks and stuff. The first one here, the first book, 100 Proofs That the Earth is Not a Globe by William B. Carpenter, a, an, an older book, but one that still really holds up, you know, really, really holds up. And there is just proof after proof after proof here that these what has been demonstrated on the earth does not comport with the globe model, you know, at least not the current globe model, right? The radius that we've been given. Now, again, as I've stated before, you need that radius for gravity. You need that for rocketry. You need this for so many other fields that rely upon that radius. And so if that is not actually correct, then the rest of the model falls apart. And so there's a hundred proofs in that book still rock solid, still dynamite. Highly recommend. Again, check it out for yourself. So next up, we have The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall, a 33rd degree Freemason. Now, what I'll say is, you have to be careful when reading the occult and their literature. There's a lot of truth that is put in Manly P. Hall's books but there's also some poison pills that are put in there, right? And so I know, I, I believe it's the secret teachings of all ages where Manly P. Hall uh, quotes, or not quotes, but erroneously states that Francis Bacon uh, was a translator for the King, the 1611 King James, which is just not true. Uh, he had nothing whatsoever to do with it. And we have a list of all the translators, and we know them all, and he's not one of them. So... And this is, there's really no, this claim just kind of pops up right around the time that Manly P. Hall writes this book. And so, yeah, this is a, there's, but there's stuff like that in there, right? Where it's like, 
Yes, there is good information in here. It's a good starting off point, but verify uh, all of these claims and particularly uh, bigger claims like that, right? So yes, he is telling us things. He is revealing a little bit of, you know, the revelation of the method, but there's also some lies being discussed here and some, you know, myths that are still being propagated. So, uh, you know, chew up the meat, spit up the bones. You know, next book up here, we have The Astronomer and the Witch, Johannes Kepler's Fight for His Mother. Now, this is a very interesting book, uh, less to do with the man himself and his theories, uh, more so with his mother. And his mother was accused of being a witch, was on trial, and he defended her. And uh, yeah, a very, very interesting, interesting story. And so, but it just goes to show you that there is a within all of these major, you know, academic minds that help propel heliocentrism forward throughout the, the millennia and the centuries, uh, there is this unmistakable undercurrent of the occult and of mysticism. And so you see that in uh, Johannes Kepler's life. Next up, we have Isaac Newton, The Last Sorcerer by Michael White. You know, another very fascinating book, an area that has become more popular lately. Now, 100 years ago, this was very embarrassing for the scientific community that Isaac Newton dabbled in the occult so much, right? And as uh, Keynes called him, he was the last of the magi, the last of the sorcerers. And it's uh, now it's basically common knowledge. You even have you know another one of the the documentaries I have pinned here in the further research section, uh, Newton's Dark Secrets by NOVA, and that's a science program by PBS. So, I mean, even public broadcasting at this point is admitting, oh yeah, Isaac Newton, totally an occultist. Now they're quite proud of it because, you know, occultism is <laughs> infused and, in, you know, just totally overtaken our society. So now they don't feel bad revealing this kind of stuff, right? And the book by Mr. White here, a very, very fascinating, in-depth look into all of his occult practices. I mean, it's truly, I mean, the, Newton and his occult practices could be an article and, you know, probably will be at a future date in and of itself. I mean, a man steeped in the mysteries and a and, and really intent on reviving that thought processes in the uh, quote-unquote modern age. Next up here, we have The Short History of Science or The Long Path to the Union of Metaphysics and Empiricism by Tuomo Suntola, a, a, a very, very good, you know, kind of a cursory look at the evolution of scientific thought throughout the ages. And this is one, as my essay will explore, that this is not a Oh, well, we have rationality on one hand and we have religion on the other hand. No, we have a, we have dueling sets of religious beliefs. We have what God's word says, and then we have the belief held by the, you know, platonic schools of thought that the sun is the highest good and therefore should be worshiped, that it is the one that is the center of our universe since it gives life and, you know, et cetera, et cetera right that's not a that's not a 
a verifiable or quantifiable thing. That's a philosophical underpinning to the mainstream and current thought processes that drive cosmology. There's a, a whole lot of rationality, honestly, lacking from the so-called scientific fields. And when you present the evidence, and when you see the evidence for yourself, you can come to your own conclusions upon that, but one that I think is rather hard to deny. And then lastly, for the books here, we have The Autobiography of Charles Darwin, 1809 to 1882, uh, by Charles Darwin, a man that is most likely a Freemason. I, I say most likely because we don't have any lodge documents and that can prove his membership, but as the Freemasons are more than willing to state, there are informal lodges. There are lodges that destroy their documents. There have even been lodges caught doctoring documents. So just because we cannot find someone within the lodge documents does not mean that they were not a member. And so Charles Darwin's family, his brothers, his father, long history of uh, Mason affiliation and one that you can see. I mean, look up some pictures online of Charles Darwin throwing up all these occult gang signs, as I like to call them, you know, the all-seeing eye, the, the vow of silence, the, uh, the sign of the master of the second veil, the, the placing of the right hand most often into the breast, uh, breast jacket, uh, the jacket, you know, you're against your breast there. And these are very, very common, very, very well-explored occult hand signs and one that I've, uh, you know, I've written extensively on in The Great Delusion, uh, kind of my cornerstone essay, and one that if you have not read yet, I, I highly recommend, right? Because it is, uh, it is the underpinning to so much of the rest of my work. If, if you don't understand the occult nature and of our ruling regime and the occult and spiritual forces at work here within uh, really the societies across the world, it is... You can't make sense of the rest of it until you get that very, very crucial puzzle pieces, as God's word, you know, as God's word states rather, that this is not a battle against flesh and blood. This is a, a battle against spirits and principalities, and, and first, most, and always is. And so, uh, you know, not a book, but a very, very good historical essay here by Larry Romanoff called a. A Few Historical Frauds, Einstein, Bell and Edison, Coca-Cola, and the Wright Brothers. Now, uh, mostly focused on Einstein here, right? But the rest of the essay is, is very good. But for Einstein specifically, a man that just, yeah, a few, his, uh, fraud is, uh, there's no other way to describe the man, right? I mean, he stole a great deal of the theory of relativity from other scientists, even named some of the principles within his theory after the man that he stole it from and then claimed, oh, I never even heard of the guy. I mean, just, right? Not even believable lies. Not even believable lies. But Mr. Romanoff's essay goes deeper into that subject. And for anyone interested on, uh, you know, the fraud that was Einstein and so many of these other, uh, these major public figures, right? If, if we are sold as this person as some kind of hero by the, the mainstream culture in this day and age, almost guaranteed at this point that that person is an occultist. Uh, you know, just 
just the unfortunate reality of the matter is that uh, if these people don't have the word of God, well, they are susceptible to being infiltrated at the very least by these spiritual forces. And so a very, very excellent essay, though, excellent essay by Mr. Romanoff. And I'm a, a big fan of his work. He has a lot of revisionist and alternative historical essays uh, in a similar vein as my own work. So if you appreciate my essays, if you like my writing, then I highly recommend Mr. Romanoff and some of his essays. And then to finish off here, a documentary called Helio Sorcery by a YouTube channel called Earth and Vessels. Now, Helio Sorcery is not explicitly a flat earth documentary or biblical cosmology documentary, but it's more a, a history of the belief system of heliocentrism and how, as the Catholic Church will more than admit, uh, they were very crucial and central to the propagation of this theory. You know, it was a Jesuit priest who created the Big Bang Theory. It is, and you know, I've read a great deal of, of Catholic thought on the subject, and, you know, to them, evolution, the Big Bang, these are all compatible with Genesis, and these are all compatible with uh, the Word of God, supposedly. Uh, you can read the Word of God for yourself. There's no, you know, the idea of a gap theory is just totally unsupported by the text. You cannot read the clear words of Genesis 1 to Genesis, you know, chapter 1, verse 1 to Genesis 1, 2, and be like, oh yeah, there's millions of years in between here. That just doesn't hold any water. It's very untenable, not just from a biblical perspective, but also from a, a scientific perspective. And so... What I will say, though, while I really do like the documentary, it's expertly done. Uh, you know, the YouTube channel Earth and Vessels are Seventh Day Adventists, and to say that that organization has problematic doctrines is a an understatement. <laughs> so I, you know, like always, chew up the meat, spit up the bones. Uh, you know, just be on your guard, right? I do not endorse uh, all the work of their channel, but they. You know, this uh, Earth and Vessels channel does have a lot of good uh, biblical cosmology-related topics. So I do recommend exploring some of their videos from that perspective. So without further ado here, I will be reading from the second article in my biblical cosmology series, Scientism versus Science. Quote, Manasseh was twelve years old when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty and five years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. 
Second Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. End quote. A deep and pervasive spiritual blindness has fallen upon the church. In our blindness, we have exchanged the truth for a lie, and we have fallen prey to a great many deceptions and anti-truths. The Luciferian devotion of our rulers being just one of these grand deceptions. The state of our modern culture is a direct result of these demonic deceptions. We have called overlooking and excusing our brother's grievous sins against society love. We have called warning and trying to rescue our brothers from everlasting torment hate. We have rejected the word of God, Jesus Christ, and with it, we have descended ever deeper into the pit of madness and despair. We as the church have largely rejected the Genesis narrative of creation, consigning the very word spoken to Moses by God on Mount Sinai to a simple allegory or poem. As an inevitable result, for several centuries now, our perception of reality has been warped in fundamental ways. Beliefs about our reality that were held by the Hebrews, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostles, the early Church Fathers, and nearly all of our forefathers, for the better part of the last six millennia, have been rejected in the light of our newfound scientific truths, quote-unquote. In response, the modern Church has bent over backwards to placate and twist Holy Scripture to fit these new discoveries. We as the Church have rejected the words of Moses and ultimately of God. In light of the many lies, half-truths, obfuscations, and abject falsehoods we have been sold these past centuries, it is necessary to frame the discussion about biblical cosmology upon the actual historical record. The men that have driven these supposed discoveries have been anything but rational, employing a great deal of mystic rituals and alchemical practices during their research. The writings and lives of famed scientists such as Pythagoras, Plato, Socrates, Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, and Darwin make their true beliefs clear. They were all avowed occultists and practitioners of the mystery rites of Babylon. What we have been sold for centuries now this fable about the long-running chain of intellectual and scientific progress driven by cold logic and clinical reason could not be farther from the truth. When our modern societies and pop culture refer to science, they largely do not mean the scientific process of observation and experimentation, i.e. observing the observable. Instead they mean, how can you dare argue against the science? The tiresome mantra of the last three years. What has replaced much of our belief in God in the West is a belief that the scientific process now reigns supreme. What is actually meant is more akin to the following. Quote, Scientism. The opinion that science and the scientific method are the best or only way to render truth about the world and reality. End quote. Scientism is not an opinion. It is a worldview. It is a belief system. It is a hermeneutic. It is a rival religion born out of the mystery cults of Babylon, and it is winning hearts and minds. For centuries now, we as the body of Christ have failed miserably to realize this glaring fact. It was the mystery religion that God's prophets warned us of all along, not 
human reason that spawned the so-called Age of Enlightenment. Before the Greeks ever penned an epic or debated the makeup of the cosmos, the Egyptian and Babylonian mystery cults were the perpetuators and keepers of this occultic knowledge. From its earliest days, the mystery religion and the spirit of Babylon have been the driving influence behind this so-called secular attempt to understand and master the known universe. It was in the Egyptian temples at Karnak that Greek luminaries such as Thales, Hippocrates, Pythagoras, Socrates, and Plato mastered the ancient and arcane mysteries, knowledge that had been passed down and guarded by the sorcerers of Egypt for millennia. It was here where Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, learned the secrets of the human anatomy. Pythagoras is considered the world's first philosopher, a mythical figure within both the scientific community and masonry. He is called the father of mathematics, learning calculus and geometry from the Egyptian priests of the mystery cult. Manly P. Hall, a prolific occult historian, echoes this in his seminal work. Quote, Pythagoras studied mathematics with the Egyptians and from them gained his knowledge of the symbolic geometric solids from the secret teachings of all ages, end quote. These geometric solids would be the square, circle, and triangle, symbols that appear repeatedly within occult symbology and that have layers upon layers of esoteric meanings. In the Egyptian universities, giant temples dedicated to study of the sacred sciences of antiquity, these ancient Greek thinkers imbibed deeply of the hidden knowledge and mystical rituals of Egypt. Pythagoras brought that occult and esoteric knowledge back to Greece from Thebes and Memphis, forever shaping the course of Western thought and Western societies. The practices of this alleged demigod, prophet, and mystic were bizarre in the extreme. All initiates in the Pythagorean cult were made to swear vows of silence for the first year after their initiation. It was only through silence and submission that one could attain enlightenment. The disciples of Pythagoras also highly revered the star Venus, i.e. Lucifer, as it was the only star bright enough to cast a shadow. Venus, the morning star, is visible before sunrise and after sunset. It has been revered by millennia of astrologers for this peculiar trait. Manly P. Hall further details the massive influence that the Egyptian mysteries had upon scientific thought and philosophy. Quote, Although the Hellenists proved themselves peculiarly responsive to the disciplines of philosophy, this science of sciences should not be considered indigenous to them. Although some of the Grecians, writes Thomas Stanley, have challenged to their nation the original of philosophy, Yet the more learned of them have acknowledged it to be derived from the East. The magnificent institutions of Hindu, Chaldean, and Egyptian learning must be recognized as the actual source of Greek wisdom. The last was patterned after the shadow cast by the sanctuaries of Elora, Ur, and Memphis upon the thought substance of a primitive people. Thales, Pythagoras, and Plato, and their philosophic wanderings, contacted many distant cults and brought back the lore of Egypt and the inscrutable Orient from the secret teachings of all ages, end quote.
As Hall makes clear, there is a clear line from the Babylonian and Egyptian mystery rites to Greek philosophy and scientific inquiry. It is also abundantly clear from the writings of these ancient Greek thinkers how intimately tied they view matters of the spiritual and physical realities. The Greek titans of philosophy and reason, quote-unquote, Socrates and a student Plato, described their reverence for the ancient mysteries in the dialogues of Plato. Quote, The founders of the mysteries would appear to have had a real meaning and were not talking nonsense when they intimated in a figure long ago that he who passes unsanctified and uninitiated into the world below will lie in a sloth, but that he who arrives thereafter initiation and purification will dwell with the gods. For many, as they say in the mysteries, are the thyrsus bearers, but few are the mystics, meaning, as I interpret the words, the true philosophers, in the number of whom, during my whole life, I have been seeking, according to my ability, to find a place. Whether I have sought it, in a right way or not, and whether I have succeeded or not, I shall truly know in a little while, if God will, when I myself arrive in the other world. Such is my belief. By Socrates, from the Dialogues of Plato. End quote. In later writings, Socrates encourages his debate partner to become an initiate of the mystery religion. Quote, I believe you will think so too, provided you are not compelled to leave prior to the mysteries, as you were saying yesterday, but stay about and be initiated. By Socrates, from the Dialogues of Plato. End quote. As Plato makes clear in his dialogues, both he and his teacher, the philosopher mystic Socrates, were initiated into these mystery rites. It was this occult knowledge, gained through experimentation and ritual magic, that served as the basis of Greek thought on science and inquiry into the natural world. The progenitors of modern astrology and heliocentrism are no better in regard to their mystical affinities. Copernicus was fascinated with the occult, and was clearly an initiate of the hermetic magics. He was also an avid follower of Marsilio Ficino, the Catholic priest responsible for the revival of Platonic thought in Italy. Quote, One might say what Ficino instituted was indeed a religion, a kind of neo-paganism. Copernicus himself was profoundly influenced by this movement, as can be clearly seen from numerous passages in the De Revolutionibus by Karl Popper, The Wisdom of Ancient Cosmology, end quote. This neo-paganism that Popper describes is nothing other than a continuation of the mystery rites of old. Plato's teachings and writings are but a continuation of what he learned in Egypt. It is a reverence and worship of the sun as a deity, i.e. Lucifer, and therefore it must be the center of the universe. This model of the universe flows from that deep religious conviction, first and foremost. Copernicus's description of the model of the heaven reads more like a devotional than a scientific treatise. Quote, In the middle of all sits sun enthroned. In this most beautiful temple could we place this luminary in any better position? from which he can illuminate the whole at once? He is rightly called the lamp, the mind, the ruler of the universe. 
Hermes Trismegistus names him the visible god. Sophocles Electra calls him the all-seeing. So the sun sits as upon a royal throne, ruling his children the planets which circle around him. The earth has the moon at her service. As Aristotle says in his On Animals, the moon has the closest relationship with the earth. Meanwhile, the earth conceives by the sun and becomes pregnant with an annual rebirth. De Revolutionibus of the Order of the Heavenly Bodies, number 10. End quote. We see a clear line from Babel to Greece to Copernicus, as Karl Popper points out below. Quote, Copernicus studied in Bologna under the Platonist Novara. In Copernicus's idea of placing the sun rather than the earth in the center of the universe was not the result of new observations, but of a new interpretation of old and well-known facts in the light of the semi-religious Platonic and Neoplatonic ideas. The crucial idea can be traced back to the sixth book of Plato's Republic, where we can read that the sun plays the same role in the realm of visible things as does the idea of the good in the realm of ideas. Now, the idea of the good is the highest in the hierarchy of Platonic ideas. Accordingly, the sun, which endows visible things with their visibility, vitality, growth, and progress, is the highest in the hierarchy of the visible things in nature. Now, if the sun was to be given pride of place, if the sun merited a divine status, then it was hardly possible for it to revolve about the earth. The only fitting place for so exalted a star was the center of the universe. So the earth was bound to revolve about the sun. This platonic idea, then, forms the historical background of the Copernican Revolution. It does not start with observations, but with a religious or mythological idea. From Conjectures and Refutations, The Growth of Scientific Knowledge. End quote. Contrary to the prevailing mainstream narratives, it was never rationalism or observed truth that drove these men to redefine our reality. It was always the occult knowledge and mystical beliefs imparted from these ancient mystery schools that drove their fervor to disprove God's established order. Isaac Newton a key figure in the scientific revolution of the 17th century, was yet another thinker in this platonic mold. Newton's reverence for the occult is a well-known topic, with even government programming admitting this truth. Quote, What Keynes found shattered his image of Isaac Newton. For in these manuscripts, Keynes discovered an Isaac Newton unknown to the rest of the world, an Isaac Newton who seemed obsessed with religion and devoted to the occult. Nova, Newton's Dark Secrets, by PBS. End quote. Newton's alchemical formulas, notes, and research was extensive, spanning the entirety of his adult life. Most of Newton's studies revolved around translating and rediscovering these ancient works of esoteric knowledge, once thought lost to history, ultimately leading to his discovery of gravity. PBS once again lets this truth slip. Quote, 
Newton pursued alchemy because it gave insight into the active principles of nature. Gravity was an occult force. It didn't have an explanation. And Newton believed that it was possible that gravity was one of those forces, one of those active principles. And so, in that sense, Newton's alchemy would give insight into gravity. By Pamela Smith from Nova, Newton's Dark Secrets. End quote. Alchemy was not the only occult arena that Newton obsessed over. His preoccupation with the Great Pyramids and their role in the Apocalypse was one of the many questions of esoteric knowledge that plagued this conflicted genius. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was one of the final nails in the coffin of the mainstream acceptance of biblical cosmology. In it, we see the final rejection of the Genesis narrative, entirely removing the hand of a purposeful creator. This desire to disprove intelligent design was one of the driving factors in the creation of his ideology. Quote, The old argument of design and nature, as given by Paley, which formerly seemed to me so conclusive, fails now that the law of natural selection has been discovered. We can no longer argue that, for instance, the beautiful hinge of a bivalve shell must have been made by an intelligent being, like the hinge of a door by man. Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws. From the Autobiography of Charles Darwin. End quote. Darwin's hatred of religion and Christianity is apparent in his writings. He makes several disparaging comments in the vein seen below. Quote, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. From the Autobiography of Charles Darwin. What Darwin fails to mention here is that his family were all high-level Masons, including, very likely, the man himself. The man's own words could not make his motivation and biases more clear. Darwin's hatred of Christ, his rejection of God's divine order, played a central role in the formation of his ideology of evolution. Before we dive into the figures, the experiments, the scriptures, and the proofs of the reality of our world, it is so crucial to lay this foundation of understanding. Before we can begin to understand the true nature of creation, we must first learn the real history of the men that laid the foundations of the modern world. The myths we have been sold about the age of rationalism and enlightenment are utterly hollow. The men behind the most pivotal scientific schools and discoveries of human history were all steeped in the mystery rites of ancient Egypt. These experiments and discoveries were driven not by desire to understand God's creation, but in order to unveil the hidden mysteries of the universe. It is from this font of occult and esoteric knowledge that all scientific thought and discovery has flowed from. Scientism, the belief that science is the ultimate tool of divining our reality, has supplanted the Church as the arbiter of His divine truth within our Western cultures. We have removed the Lord from His place of honor, and we have defiled it 
with these idols crafted by mystics and sorcerers. We have deluded ourselves into thinking we are the most advanced and knowledgeable civilization to grace God's green earth. And yet, our society is more morally bankrupt, backwards, ignorant, and depraved than ever before. Quote, The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. Albert Einstein. End quote. <laughs>